tonight is probably one of my favorite topics for the whole time, although I also like the one for tomorrow morning, which will be Jesus Takes on Babylon. Tonight we're going to be talking about dealing with divine anger. If there is any one thing in Christianity at large that tends to create an artificial reality for religious things. It is God's wrath. You think about it. If we're afraid of God being angry at us for something we've done, does that make us more honest? More in love with God? More trusting of Him? Or does that make us tend to be maybe a little dishonest and less in love with God and less trusting in Him. In the he- both the Hebrew Bible and Babylon, divine anger plays a major role. In each of these two people groups, about the same number of root words for anger exist in the Hebrew Bible as are listed in the Assyrio- Assyro-Babylonian dictionaries. I checked it out. There's about seven different words for each, the Old Testament and Babylonian. Both contain a lot of references to God's wrath or the God's wrath, depending on which one you're talking about. And so tonight we're going to try to analyze divine anger in each of these two places, and I think you'll be surprised at some of the differences. So we're going to start with Babylonia. How do we know that divine anger forms a special role, maybe a core role, in Babylonia? Well, here's my list. The following rituals and actions the Syro-Babylonians did to prevent and appease divine anger is as follows. Remember that worshippers were created to be the slaves of the deities they worshipped. So, as dutiful slaves, they had to bring food offerings. And they had to make sure those food offerings were served well and that they tasted good, because if they didn't, the god might get angry. And though priests and caretakers ate from the same meal as the gods, they never, as good slaves, ate with the gods. I can't, I'm going to pause and break my rule that I was going to deal with all of this first, but I'm going, to, I'm going to cross over to the Old Testament. Can you think of any time when ancient Israel, or part of ancient Israel, ate a meal with God? Abraham. Yeah, Abraham. Out under the trees of Mamre, ate, actually served a meal to God, but he didn't eat with God. He actually, the text says he stood and waited while they ate. With the elders yeah. in the wilderness? Yes. Yes, at the foot of Sinai. Seventy elders went up to the top of a mountain to meet with God, and while meeting there, they ate and drank in His presence as though He was their slave. It doesn't say God ate with them. It says they ate and drank in his presence. And just to make sure we get that point, it adds, 
and God didn't lay a hand on them. To lay a hand on them, a single hand, was to do harm. Two hands, blessing. The God in Babylonia ate his meal alone and in silence. The motive of doing all this for the God was duty, of course, but more significantly to keep the God happy. Like any slave master, a full contented deity would be less likely to get angry. On the other hand, the neglected God would probably strike the worshiper or slave with appropriate punishment. So that's part one. Part two, a king's engagement in temple building and restoration as an act of duty to the gods was done pretty much to keep the gods happy. A god whose temple lay in disrepair might huff off in anger if the right deity such as Era came along and taunted him with his dirty crown. So let me introduce you to the god Era. He is the god of hell, to put it in, in modern terms. Of course, hell didn't look, quite look like it does in, in modern Christianity. But, but it was this uh, place of, of not such good things that a person went to when they died. And Era was kind of rustive, and his, his uh, armed forces were even more rustive, and they complained to him that their weapons were getting uh, rusty and from disuse, and they needed to sharpen them up and use them. And so Era connived to visit Marduk in his temple. Remember that Marduk is the patron god of Babylon. So Era saunters into Marduk very much like the Satan comes before Yahweh, in Job, and he says, oh, why is your tiara dirty? Tiara is the word for crown. Why is your tiara dirty? And look at your temple. It's in terrible shape. Aren't they taking care of you? What's wrong with them? I'm making some of this up, but but the tenor of what he said was the same. And Marduk said, oh, that's terrible. You're right. My tiara is dirty, and, and the temple is in disrepair. I will leave my temple so they can clean it up. In Babylon, the gods had to leave the temple, the sanctuary, in order for it to be cleansed. That's not true in the Day of Atonement. So, Eris says smoothly, That's fine, you may leave, and I'll take care of things while you're gone. And so Marduk takes off, Era takes over, and he wreaks havoc on the Babylonians. He sends plagues, he sends armies, he sends everything imaginable, very much like the Satan does to Job. And the Babylonians are greatly afflicted. And what is Era's desire? That they fear him. He wants their fear. And it takes his vizier to persuade him that this, you got it, you got their fear, and to have him lay off. When the Elamites took Babylon's patron god Marduk out of his temple, by the way, ancient war was playing capture the god. When you conquered another city, you made sure you went to the temple, got the patron god of that city, and took him to your temple, God's temple, and put him in front of your God. 
That was really conquering. So when the Elamites took Babylon's patron god Marduk out of his temple, of course that would be his idol, one writer claimed that Marduk and his temple were neglected and that he actually appealed to the Elamites to come and get him. That's part two. Part three is very brief. In the temples, the priests burned incense and offered incantation to soothe the gods so that they would be inclined to answer their petitions and show them favor. Four, kings, officers, and common people read the omens to learn whether the gods were angry and had fated them to punishment. They believed the gods communicated verdicts in the natural realm through sheep, entrails, things I mentioned last night. These verdicts, by the way, were not fixed. Their outcomes, uh, if their outcomes were negative, they could be negotiated with. That was part of this appeasement. And like Job's three friends, the Assyro-Babylonians believed that all illness, loss of reputation, injustice, and other misfortunes were sent by the god, at gods as punishment for doing something they abhorred. So how do you deal with angry gods in Babylonia? Well, I mentioned appeasement. That's the big thing. So there are prayers that say, be appeased. Marduk, especially during the Akitu festival, which is the Babylonian counterpart of the Day of Atonement. In the Akitu festival, there was a prayer prayed to Marduk, be appeased, Marduk, be appeased. Or, or one translation says, my Lord, my Lord, be calmed. Over and over again. Talk about the vain repetitions of the heathen. That's an example. Then I mentioned last night the substitute king ritual. This is, again, the gods are angry at the king. They want to destroy him or get, hand him over to armies to destroy. And so they get a substitute king to reign a certain number of days. At the end of the days, he and his spouse are taken out and executed. Legally, it works. The, the gods got the king, Right? just wasn't the king they were after. This is how disingenuous things get when you worship angry gods. Negotiations and manipulations of the gods' moods. Uh, Prayers are formal. There's no wrestling matches that go on between the Babylonians and their gods. They wouldn't think of praying like Moses at the burning bush, which verse after verse, in fact, (laughs) almost two chapters he argues with God against going to Egypt it's the longest dialogue between a person and God in the entire Bible Babylonians would never think of doing that or Moses pleading with God or Job who gets really kind of angry at times the general relationship of servants to their masters also feeds into this. The elite were probably a little more casual in their relationship with the gods. After all, no evidence that the gods there was no, they had no evidence that the gods were angry with them. They had it all going well. But at the same time, there was no trace of an emotional attachment, um, a tender searching of authentic love. There's none of that in Babylonia. 
Instead, you have an attitude of reverence, respect, a prostration of fear, the role of good slaves. Because remember, that's the one place that they're equal before the gods. They're all slaves. Even the king is a slave of the god. One of the aspects of this whole scenario is that angry kings were like angry gods. I did a study of the Chicago Assyrian Dictionary, which is a great 22-volume set that has not just the definitions of words, but every entry that at the time they made that particular dictionary volume they had access to. All the texts where this was used. It's a great resource. And and they typically put a word and then its definitions and, and then the text where it is found with those definitions and they put it according to time periods. So I went through it and I discovered that in the time periods that have the most entries for angry kings also have the most entries for angry gods. Hmm. This seems especially true during the first millennium when the greatest Syrian and then the Babylonian kings ruled in the ancient Near East, a time of great bureaucracy and tremendous uh, despotism. The perception of angry gods took on political significance. And the evidence seems to mount that the gods found that the kings found gods, angry gods, pretty useful to get their way. One example comes from a land grant written by the tyrannical king Ashurbanipal. He he was one of the last kings in the line of Sargon II. Sargon II had a son named Sennacherib, who had a son named Azarhaddon, who had a son named Ashurbanipal. Ashurbanipal was the last mighty king to rule Assyria before it fell to the Babylonians. So they had this land grant written by Ashurbanipal who mandated protection for his officer during his life and indefinitely in the afterlife. This officer may have been at Babylon. He wrote, Whoever disturbs him after he's dead and removes him from the grave where he is lying May the king, his lord, be angry with him and show him no mercy and by the wrath of God and king may a blood-stained weapon await him. What catches my eye is that phrase by the wrath of God and king. This is a use of divine anger for political power. The treaties, evidence from the treaties, suggests this as well. I'm going to turn in my notes because I think I had this out of line. So I'm going to just wing it. Uh, in the treaty that we talked about last night, a succession treaty for Ezra Haddon. Remember, they're told to love or else. <laughs> love Ezra Haddon or else. In, that, in those treaties, the curses were the exhibition of the wrath of the deities. And the treaties really only had support and effect if the gods would get angry 
and, and curse anyone who didn't keep the treaty. So divine anger had political significance, particularly in the first millennium. Now we're going to move to divine anger in the Hebrew Bible. You find a lot of parallels and differences that exist between divine anger in the Hebrew Bible and the ancient Near East. And by the way, as a side note, Egyptian gods were never known to be angry. Divine anger is almost unknown in Egypt. It's interesting that John the Revelator would choose Babylon and the wine of the wrath of her fornication and not choose Egypt. He couldn't. Historically, Egypt did not have angry gods. Well, there's a place in the Bible that has no anger of God, and it will surprise you. Does anybody know? Actually, there's seven books, but there's one prominent book where you would think that God would be angry, where God is not mentioned as angry once. Anybody here? I'll, I'll, I know this is a guessing game. And I, you may have to all give, and I'll give you the answer. The obvious guess is Esther, because God is mentioned at all. But, <laughs> but I don't know if that, that's what you're after. No, I'm not. I'm after a book that would, you would expect to have God being angry, and he's not at all. Job? No. God is actually angry in Job. He's angry at the three friends yeah. for not speaking of him what is right. I'll tell you this thing. It's not in the writings... It's not in the historical books. That narrows it down pretty, pretty quick. Psalms, song, songs, and psalms are in the writings. And God is, by the way, mentioned as being angry or petitioned to be angry in psalms. What a bit. Is it Jonah? No. Well, he might be one of the seven, come to think of it. Yeah, that's a possibility, but he's, he's not the one I'm picking. There's seven books that don't... There's seven books that don't... Five to seven, somewhere around there, that don't mention God's anger. One of them is Joel, which is surprising, considering the dark day of the Lord. Yeah. Did you have Joel? I said it. I thought it. I said it out loud Good for you. But that's not the one I'm thinking of. This is a long book. has 50 chapters. Now, if you know how long the chapters are, how many chapters are in each book. No? Jeremiah has 51. Or 52. I take that back, 52. It's going to be Ezekiel then. No? What else has 50 chapters? Genesis. Genesis. God is not angry at the flood. He's grieved. He's not angry at the flood. He's not angry over Sodom and Gomorrah. Cain is angry, but not God. And it's a rejection of his anger. God is rejecting Cain's anger. In fact, it's Cain's anger that, that provides the reader for the violence culminating in the flood. Cain's anger that leads him to slay his brother Abel is the precursor to the flood. Now, I'm going to borrow from a methodology I've developed for the Old Testament that is in some ways reflective of Jesus' reading of the Old Testament. 
I deal with a canonical read of the Old Testament, and I look for two voices, two divine voices, the voice of God's preferred will and the voice of his will adapted or acquiesced to the will of the people. Jesus uses that method in Matthew 19 about divorce. The two voices are the preferred voice and the voice adapted to the will of the people. And Genesis, I I find that the first instance of that voice in a narrative sequence, a topical narrative sequence, is the preferred voice. And so Genesis, that has an absence of divine anger, is God's preferred voice of Scripture. So the first canonical instance of divine anger occurs in Exodus 4 when Moses finally runs out of all his excuses why he can't go to Egypt and he says, Oh Lord, please just send someone else. Then it says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled at Moses. And what do you expect next? (laughs) Slap on the face. Fire coming down from heaven. What does God say when he gets angry? What of your brother Aaron the Levite? Is he not coming to meet you? What had Moses just said? Oh Lord, please send someone else. And then God says, okay, I'll give you what you want. Is it good for you? No. Aaron causes all kinds of problems. To read the story. I would like to suggest this is definitive for the rest of the Bible. If this is what God does when he gets angry, this is the preferred voice. This is the 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 preferred the voice of God's preferred will. This is his preferred way of expressing his anger. To give people what they want. And this is an, it will find an echo in Romans 1, 18, 24, 26, and 28, where Paul describes God's wrath as giving people up to the consequences of their choices. What's the verse on that? Romans 1, 18, 24, 26, and 28. Yes. Quickly, uh, I was just reading it, and so it, 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 it mentioned in uh, Patriarchs and Prophets, Prophets and, yeah, Patriarchs and Prophets, um, when they chose a king, that was definitely not his preferred will, but he, he accommodated, the anger wasn't there though, wasn't it, or was it? Well, it, you can say it is in Hosea, Hosea says, God says, I gave them a king in my anger, okay. and I took him away in my wrath. Nice. Oh, that's awesome. So I've already mentioned that there are the same number of words for anger. We're looking at similarities now that exist in the Hebrew Bible as in the Akkadian language. That's the Babylonian Assyrian language. Yes? If God wasn't angry in Genesis, under what heading do we have Sodom and Gomorrah and the flood? What's that called? It, it just happens. It It is, and and God is said to do it, but he's not said anywhere to be angry. I think I think you can carry over 
the statement in Genesis of the flood that God was grieved. Oh, he still did it. Yeah. He was grieved. So there are some similarities between Babylonian anger and Hebrew anger. I mentioned the same number of words. And in both cultures, there is a correlation between royal power and anger and divine anger. So royal anger and divine anger. The prophets who represented God as angry lived in the shadow of kings who wanted power. They often addressed the king directly and in a not in a favorable way in contrast to Assyrian prophets who always buttered up the king, almost always buttered up the king. These prophets who represented God as the most furious are Nahum, who prophesies against Nineveh of Assyria, and Ezekiel, who prophesies in Babylon. So the angriest prophets are prophets who are very tied to the Syro-Babylonian area where divine anger is of great consequence. But even here there are differences. Nahum speaks against Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, under Sennacherib. He, Nahum, you want to repeat that? That's the greater question of theodicy. Why does God allow bad people to rule the earth? No, I mean, why did God allow Israel to have a king when it wasn't his will? I think they're two separate things. One is inspiration and one is the choice of the king. But, but inspiration works like that in that it speaks in two voices Jesus said Moses gave allowed you to divorce divorce for the stiffness of your necks and the hardness of your hearts but in the beginning it was not so there's the in the beginning and then there's what happens when people insist on their own way God is not a dictator he is not he is not a, a micromanager and he will adapt to people to meet them where they are. He will not force them into line. So uh, this is reflective of what God is doing. Okay, It's an honest record of what God is doing. So what Nahum is doing, he's actually speaking to the Assyrians, and he's actually speaking to Sennacherib. He therefore portrays God's wrath against the oppressor who himself is angry and who has lent support to portrayals of the gods as angry. By the way, I believe it's Sennacherib who was responsible for the treaty of succession treaty of Ezra Haddon. Ezekiel speaks to the Jews living in Babylon, Babylon who allowed oppression from angry kings while still living in Jerusalem. They, they were willing to let their king be an oppressor. And so Ezekiel, again, is meeting them where they are and speaking a language they would understand. Say that again. Ezekiel 
Ezekiel was Ezekiel was speaking to Jews living in Babylon who had when they were in Jerusalem allowed a, their king to be oppressive without counting countering it. And he's therefore saying, "Oh, you're angry at people and you're willing to oppress them through your king. Well, God is angry at you." So there. Speaking their language. As we showed earlier tonight, Assyria and Babylonia and their religion centered on preventing the gods from getting angry, appeasing them when they did, and overall manipulating their mood with various rituals to keep them happy. The core of these religions was appeasement. I'm just reminding you of this before we move on. And they resembled how subjects feared and sought to deal with their kings. Worship was based on fear and respect more than love. And I mentioned that in the Old Testament, God's closest friends would wrestle with him and argue with him, respectfully, of course. The Babylonians could not do this. So when they dealt with God being angry, they knew they could go to him about his anger and talk with him about it. They didn't need anybody going between like a priest. They didn't need to... Uh, Placate him. And now we're going to come to uh, one of the most important and somewhat difficult places in the Bible about relating to God's anger. Some think that the, in the terms in Leviticus to make atonement, this is when you bring a sacrifice and it makes atonement on your behalf, means that the Israelites appeased God or reconciled him in some way by blood offerings. And that's because the word kipper can mean to appease. It's used of Jacob and Esau. When Jacob sends the drafts of animals ahead of him to meet his brother Esau, it says he hoped to, to cover his, or actually to wipe off his brother's face, which means literally to appease. And it's the word kipper. Does, it, does that mean then that the Israelites appease God by their sacrifices? Many people think that. But uh, one Jewish scholar, uh, Israeli Jewish scholar, has written a book in which he contends that the construction of to make atonement for you without, without and the object of God being there is deliberate to avoid appeasement. That to make atonement is a very different mechanism and that the, the actual structure of the Hebrew, and since most of you here don't know Hebrew, I am hesitant to try to go in any deeper, but the construction of, he, of the Hebrew, uh, which does not have God or God's face, or anything like that, as the object, doesn't mean that God is being appeased. It means that atonement is being made. It's more of expiation of atonement for sin. He contends that that word, kipper, can only mean uh, appeasement if it has God, or some form of God as its object, like God's face, or, or what have you. Is there a, is there a, like an Acadian cognate that? 
The word kipper in Akkadian does not mean to appease. The word kipper, in, it's kapuru uh, in Akkadian, and it means to wipe off. It's more of a cleansing. That's the expiatory type function and role. And he, uh, Itzkok, uh, and I can't remember his last name now, but he uh, goes to the Septuagint to point out that the Septuagint was very careful to retain the order, the same order of language. Prophets who portray God as angry do so to gain repentance, not appeasement. Repentance is what turns away God's wrath. Well, why? Because if you're going one direction, you're going to have certain consequences from that direction if God allows that. And if you turn around and go in a different direction, those consequences can be stayed. So to repent in Hebrew means to return to God. It literally means to turn around or return. Uh, in uh, Greek, it means to change the mind, to turn the mind around. A similar word in Akkadian is used, but it's used more of God's turning back to the people they've left than of people returning to their gods. So it's almost the opposite. And in the New Testament, what is it that leads to repentance? The kindness or goodness of God. Now here's a very important part. I'm going to try to slow down here so that you grasp this. I know when I start spouting Akkadian and Hebrew terms, <laughs> the ears start falling off heads. Uh, but if you'll hang on there, you'll, you'll get some really important truth. Two of the Akkadian terms, Agagu and Azazu, occur most frequently in conjunction with gods and kings. These are used the most often. The first, agagu, refers to a passing emotion. You're quickly angry and then you're over it. The second, azazu, implies an inherent quality. You're an angry person. Now, applied to a god, Azazu represents an aspect of his persona or even his nature or character. Does the Hebrew Bible apply anger to God's character? Well, Nahum speaks of Yahweh as Lord of Anger. The word he uses for Lord is not Adonai, which is the traditional one the Hebrew Bible uses. It is Baal. I pronounce Baal, Baal, because if I ever read a paper in which I have the name Baal and I say Baal, I'm uh, <laughs> in real trouble. So I train myself very carefully to say Baal because that's what most scholars say, the pronunciation. In Hebrew, it's actually Baal. Baal is simply an English perversion of that. So what does it mean that he's Lord of Anger? Baal means owner. It means master, as in slave master. 
It means husband. It's a legal term for husband in Hebrew. And it means a god, a Canaanite deity. This is one of the closest instances in which anger seems to ascribe to God's, to Yahweh's character. Since the term Baal, Lord, can mean master or owner, it isn't clear whether Yahweh has anger as one of his attributes or whether he controls anger. If he controls anger, the word anger would represent disaster as it often does in the later periods of Israel. Anger, divine anger, actually comes to represent bad things happening. It doesn't, it's not a personal term of God's feelings at all. It's not his mood. It is simply denoting an act of God, something like we do in, in insurance policy. In God's self-disclosure to Moses in Exodus 34-7-8, he pronounces his name, which means his character, as we mentioned last night, as merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So if he's slow to anger, it means that he does get there. It, it mean, but it, it, if you're slow to anger, you're a patient person. It's actually a term for patience. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. The anger in slow to anger could hardly mean a steady, consistent attribute of God's character. If he's slow to anger, that's not an attribute of God's character. That's an attribute of patience. And consequently, many translations translate slow to anger as patience or patient. This statement is definitive in terms of God's character. Then what do you do about visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who sin? Victoria? It's in Proverbs somewhere that he said, or it's somewhere in the Bible where he says that that is a wrong proverb, that that is not true. He says that in the Bible. That that shouldn't be. There, the, 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 right, that's true, that's true. But, but let, let me finish. Visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children to the third and fourth generation is visiting, is allowing the consequences of the iniquity of the fathers to go to their children only to the third and fourth generation. Now some would say, no, that's a repeating decibel, third, fourth generation, on and on ad infinitum. But there are studies uh, that show, I'll, I'll pick one in particular. There's a study that has been done on pedophilia. I don't know if you're aware of it. But a father who is a pedophilia, who molests his children and then his grandchildren, will often create pedophiles in them. But there's a study that shows that usually at the third or fourth generation, the cycle is stopped. So I would like to suggest that the visiting of the iniquity of the parents upon the children of the third or fourth generation is simply the consequences working out that God allows that otherwise you have a really bad theological problem as Victoria pointed out 
because in Deuteronomy, and I'm trying to think of the other place, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 18, the son shall not suffer for the sins of his fathers and the father for the sons. The soul that sins shall die. The soul that sins shall die. And since this is in the Ten Commandments, I I feel a call to have to explain this. And that's what I think it means. In that appearance with with Moses, it's directly contrasted with what happens with those who love him. Yes. Yes, in in the Ten Commandments, showing mercy to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. There is a contrast. Yeah. Which means that anybody who chooses to repent can turn around. If I'm in the second generation and right. I love him, right. mercy is my law right. and my children's law. Right. I heard of a por- former pedophile who had has started a support group for our pedophiles and has had tremendous success. And these are people that psychologists write off as incorrigible. They can't be changed. So we're now going to move to divine anger in the Day of Atonement. Now remember, this is the Israelite counterpart to the Akitu festival in which the sanctuary of Marduk was cleansed in Babylon. So a little bit of background. In the Israelite rituals, there are no prayers prayed. Everything is done in silence, except for maybe the casting of the lots for the two goats. Consequently, there are no prayers for appeasement as there are in the Akitu festival. The only prayers prayed come from the people who would have prayed them silently as they confessed their sins. One thing we need to know as we study the Day of Atonement, and everybody leaves this out, and we still seem to lack contextualization of Bible passages. The very first verse of Leviticus 16 ties the story of the Day of Atonement to the sin and punishment of Nadab and Abihu. And once again, in in the story of the punishment of Nadab and Abihu, God is not angry. There's no mention of it. Now, what connection would the Day of Atonement have to Nadab and Abihu going into the temple with incense and strange fire, the fire they kindled themselves instead of fire off the altar, and they die on the on the tent floor. What connection between that and the Day of Atonement would there be? Well, at least one. The high priest wasn't supposed to go in except once a year. Okay, God makes, that ru- God makes that ruling after Nadab and Abihu sin, right on the, on the heels of it. So it's almost like it wasn't a problem before, but now it's a problem. And so God says, okay, you do this once a year, and this is how you do it. What is the issue? I thought I heard something. A strange fire. A strange fire seems to be the issue. Is it false worship? You're thinking of the issue of the story. The issue, I'm, the issue of the story that I'm talking about is the issue of the story as it relates to the Day of Atonement. Attitude 
Well, well uh, sorry, this is probably not what you're getting at, but but the restriction on going in there was meant to save lives. Right. Okay, you're very close. You're very, very hot. It, it's cleansing the sanctuary, but there's more. The question that Nadab and Abihu's deaths raise is how can a person go into the presence of the Holy God and not die? And the Day of Atonement is the answer. How a person can go into the most holy place and not die. So God takes them through a process by which that can happen. And the other question is, what about God's anger? I mean, anybody watching the whole thing happen would probably conclude that God was angry. Can I ask just a clarification? Sure. Are, are you suggesting that the Day of Atonement was not, say, originally part of the plan? That the sanctuary service was simpler, like the ancient patriarchal, you know, offerings, and that the Day of Atonement really is a, a response, a reaction, a further elaboration on the ritual because of the Nadab and Abihu incident. I have said that in the past. That's not where I'm going now, but it is something to think about. Paul says the law, and and Leviticus is part of the law, if you take the Torah as the law. The law was added because of transgression. The more we sin, the more we need help and remedies and illustrations of the plan of salvation that will help us out of the ditch that we're in. Yeah? I don't think a person has to be particularly angry and carry through on. Okay. Okay. But, But most people, I mean, you think about if a if a child saw something like that happen, wouldn't they be pretty terrified? And, and they might think, oh, God must be really angry. Yeah. That, and and this, is, this is the thing as we read the Bible, we need to always be in reminding of the audience in which God is speaking. That's our context. So part of the... Part of the answer to the question of the Day of Atonement is going to be to explain something about God's wrath. And it's going to come from a surprising thing. But I'm going to switch, seem to switch gears here just a little bit. So what about the goat for Azazel? We have two goats, a goat for Yahweh and a goat for Azazel. What does, who is Azazel? Now Adventists, out or, or have been traditionally out of step with evangelical Christianity in applying this to Satan. Evangelicals say both goats belong to Jesus. They're both representing him. One is representing Jesus' life, uh, his, his crucifixion, and the other goat is representing his rejection and being cast out of the city. But Adventists have long believed that this refers to Satan. And we're in step with long rabbinic Judaism. The the rabbis have long believed that the goat for Azazel represents a demon, a desert demon. 
Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you, does anybody remember the two ter- Babylonian terms for wrath? Agagu and Azazu. Does that sound anything like Azazel? So, Chaim ben Yosef Tawil, a Israeli Jewish scholar, maintains that the term Azazel is a metathesized form of Azaz and Ale. So, Azaz, Ale, but it's metathesized because you have the little Hebrew letter Ayan in the wrong place for it to be a perfect match for Azaz. So it's switched, the letters are switched, and that happens a lot in Hebrew, and it doesn't mean that it can't mean, be a reference to that. So he maintains that the term Azazel is a, a metathesized form of Azaz and Ale to mean fierce God. Now he gets the fierce from Babylon, uh, Babylonian Azazu. Because in Hebrew, Azaz means strong. It doesn't mean anger or angry. It is the Hebrew version of the Akkadian Azu, which is related to the verb form Azazu and means fierce or angry. So you have just a little bit touch of Babylonian in Azazel. And this is the, essentially the Babylonian word for anger as a settled part of divine character. So at the end of the Day of Atonement, when the entire process of expiation is completed, the Babylonian fierce god goat is taken, bearing Israel's sins to a place where he is then let go. And that's the angry god goat that represents Satan in the Babylonian sense is meant to carry the sins away. And that's meant vindication. Well, I know, Bob, you don't like that word. <laughs> um, I do. <laughs> uh, it means that God's people have been almost, not exonerated, because we're not, we aren't worthy of exoneration, but, but in a sense vindicated like Job was at the end of the Day of Atonement. By the way, uh, the day on which the sons of God met in the book of Job is the rabbis think was the day of atonement so at the, at the end of this expiation process on the day of atonement the angry God in the Babylonian sense is not Yahweh it's Satan and he's sent away it's interesting that they would say that, that they met on the Day of Atonement because Job happens prior to sanctuary service. And He's not an Israelite, is he? <laughs> nor is he an Israelite. I mean, it's just on what basis. But, but it's assuming Israelite readers. And, and that's why where you get that. Mm. Although, if our understanding of when Job was written is correct, it's still prior to, you know, this is Moses writing... Prior to the Exodus. Yes, Bob. So, is it fair to say that it, as much as maybe bearing 
a share of guilt or all guilt. Actually, the accusations turn back on the accuser. Mm -hmm. Yes! Exactly. They hit a mirror? Yeah. Exactly. He has to bear them all because he's to blame. Yes. He's, he's, he's not just our accuser. He tempted us to do everything. And so when we, we, when that is all revealed, the sins are placed on him and said, you done it. <laughs> and he's sent away. Well, the, the law of the malicious that, witness? That, so, so the Jesus one actually bears our sin from us. Yes. And the Satan goat bears his responsibility <coughs> in our sin. Exactly. Which doesn't expiate us. But it gets him for what he did. Yeah. Yes. Going back to the Nadab and the Bible part, was it a benign God that destroyed Nadab and the Bible, or did they spontaneously combust? Fire comes out from God and consumes them, but they're still in their clothes and are taken in their clothes out of the garment, so their still bodies are still intact. Um, so what I see this is if you look go to, to Exodus 34 or 33 Moses asked to see God's glory and God says I will make all my goodness pass before you and I will claim before you my name but I will put you in the cleft of the rock and I will put my hand over you as I pass by because no one can see my face and live in a sinful state Human beings are combustible in God's presence. That doesn't mean God is suddenly angry. It means that His love is a consuming fire. And that's what I think destroyed Satan, Adam, and Abihu. Yeah. So when this incoming comes, whatever that is, well, we can bust into fire. That's the issue, isn't it? Yeah, that is, that is the question. I got Jesus, so I'm not planning I, I, I believe that God has, will do everything in his power to save us. That he's in the saving business, not the destroying business. Jesus makes that very clear in John 10.10. 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Um, so I believe God is in the saving business. He will do all He can to save everyone. He will only people will only be lost because they chose that. And and so at the final end, I think God is still reaching out to them in a sense, giving them one last embrace, and that love is a consuming fire only to the wicked, not to the righteous. It's amazing that God would say, I want to build a place so I can be with you. Yeah. And then prescribe all of this kind of... Protection for us. For it. Yeah. So that he can still be there with us. Right. Yeah. And I think that's one of the coolest things about Revelation is that it shows us this image of Jesus being in the midst of all of us and that we can be in the presence without any, any shielding. Right. We can be there with him. And that's why he came, one of the reasons, why he came as he did, so that we wouldn't be consumed. The other reason was so that we wouldn't worship him for his power. <laughs> yeah. Isn't this kind of like 
trying to find what the original dollar bill looks like by examining the counterfeit. I mean, looking at Babylonian words and Assyrian words, aren't we trying to superimpose those meanings onto a original God? How does that allow us to see the original God by seeing a counterfeit system of worship? I see these two texts as I overlay one text over the other because it highlights things I would otherwise pass by and not notice. Son, I see the contrast. You can't do that with a dollar bill. But you can do that with two ancient texts. And you can see their contrasts vividly and more clearly by doing that. So what it has done for me is to highlight aspects of the Hebrew Bible I would never have ever realized were there and and to realize that the ancient people who read those texts were familiar with the other texts and they would see what I now see so it's, it's kind of like if we could hear the other half of Paul's conversation when he writes a letter and, and we don't know what the context was that he was dealing with you know we're kind of trying to reconstruct that to make sense of what he's saying in some sense, we're getting sort of the other half of the conversation. The, the Bible texts were, in some sense, written as a polemic against many of these ideas. Exactly. But we just aren't aware of them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very, very good way of putting it. I don't know who's first. I'll go with you, I guess. You mentioned uh, how Ezekiel kind of brings out more of the wrath of God. Um, you talked about the Day of Atonement and, and how they were in silent prayer, in repentance, not um, appeasement. And I'm just wondering, in Ezekiel chapter 9, I think it's chapter 9, um, where, the, where the men are going out with the slaughtering weapons, um, does that fit at all with, with wrath being dispensed, um, the mindset and, and all of that? I see that as actually very symbolic, because this is a sealing time that's being, yeah. the, receiving the mark, right. and anyone who doesn't have the mark is, is slain. Um, that means spiritual death is how I see that. Well, but it needs if they got it. I, I'm talking, though, about this particular passage. Right. It seems to be equated with the ceiling in Revelation. Um, and the opposite of that ceiling was the mark of the beast. Right. Which is a part of the day of the atonement. Well, it's at the end. It's at the end of the day of atonement, typical, typologically. Yes. The question presented reminded it, it calls back to a question raised yesterday about why Jerusalem and Babylon. But isn't that the basic conflict? We, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's not one government, one religion, one king, but. Babylon, the kingdom of chaos and confusion, Jerusalem, the city of peace. And in the same way that when we fall off the wagon and go back into whatever mess we were in before, we've lost our peace, we've given it away, we're back in chaos and confusion. And it's a clear dichotomy. Mm-hmm. That's what I've tried to highlight. And is that clear dichotomy? Um, and I'm, I'm going to add a dimension to this that I, I don't always say 
But the Bible represents ancient gods of other cultures as demons. And you think about Lucifer in heaven contending that he was improving on God's government. And Ellen White says that he had a very intense view of justice. Every sin must be punished. He, he was very, uh, very judicial in his view of justice and very punitive. And he wanted to improve on the government of God. And so, my belief is that Marduk, who resembles the fall of Lucifer so well in the text of Numa Elish, is Satan. And that worshipping him, they were really worshipping Satan. And that Babylon, and all Mesopotamia, was Satan's attempt to improve on the government of God with his own government. And you might think that I'm, I'm a little wild and off, off target there. But when I realize that the Bible sees these gods as demons, who, who is behind the scenes wanting worship? Yeah. And don't we have even biblical passages, a, a uh, what's the word? I can't think of the right word, to the king of Babylon. Uh, in Isaiah. Right, that we apply to Lucifer. Right, but would that have been the king above the king, Marduk? It, actually, yes. It could be, because one of Marduk's epithets is king of Babylon. I think... Pray for us when you're ready. Okay. I'll take, I'll take one last question to comment, and then we'll have prayer. Okay, yours... I agree with what you're saying. I don't think it's part of God's character to kill. But I also feel that it's a strange act of God to destroy the wicked. And also you have the destroying angel. There are destroying things. But I don't think it's part of his character. It's kind of like the last resort. Let, let me put it this way. Would you kill your children who are already dying? No. <laughs> I had to face them. Mm. Okay? Mm. I had a child dying. I had to face them. So, so you would believe God's last act as uh, euthanasia? I think we could all sit around at the end of the world and make sure people die. How is that going to prove anything? Or God, in his mercy, well, says, let it be done. But, but what if... Why not? I mean, I don't understand why you're so afraid of God. Because if God is the one killing us, it completely destroys cause and effect relationships. In your mind, but not mine. To me, it fulfills cause and effect. Now, I have to study. I want to say I have to... And intrinsic, I mean intrinsic cause and effect. In other words, we never see what really would happen if sin played out its final role. But that isn't how it's going to be. 
Because God is going to let them go. He restrained, he, he has us on artificial life support right now. He's keeping us alive. When he lets that go, it's going to happen quite quickly. And we're going to see what the sin is. Um, let me refer you to a, an article in Signs of the Times that you would do well to read. It's Signs of the Times, April 28. No, April 14. I'm sorry. April 14, 1898. Signs of the Times, April 14, 1898. She describes the death of the wicked as chiefly mental anguish. That's what Jesus suffered at the cross. He died the second death. And he died a death of mental agony. He died. But not at the hands of God. At the hands of sin. Sin is what took his life. And sin is what is going to take the life of the wicked. Yes, and yeah. The, the, the reason I say this has to be is because the God's law is at stake. Yeah. If he's the one who's going to kill us, then why didn't he just do that in the first time and get, it, get rid of us? Because it had to play out. But why then? Because it has to play out, and it has to play out to the very bitter end. I don't think so. I think he steps in. He cuts it short righteousness or whatever, because by then we're convinced. But wrath is, in, in the third angel's message, wrath is unmixed. I know, it would be nice if God were the great euthanizer, but how many people would not trust him as a result? What would be past that? I told you, I had to watch the son die, okay? And long before he dies, you know, and the doctor kept saying, you know he's going to die. So you want to really sit here and watch it go down? Yes, I did. But I had to do it over, now I know. But you think you think of the people that will line up with Jesus at the tree of life and say, if you just gave them one more chance, I'm sure they would understand. If I could just talk to them, I would I'm sure they would understand. If we don't have that all played out, there is going to be the risk of insecurity throughout eternity. I understand that, though. I'm saying by the time we get there, the thinking that we have right now in this room will be a little different. But if it, we mature, I want to say, now I'm not saying you're right, I'm just saying. Okay. okay. I want to say, I'm put the, uh, I have to study these cases for criminals at Alcatraz, okay? And. Uh, Gordon said his biggest problem was not the inmates, it was their parents. Because he had killers that they wanted to let loose because maybe this is their son or whatever. And the warden was saying, if I let them loose, they're going to kill more civilians. And you're for that? And the parents said, yes. And he said, no, we're going to do this. No. There's In- a point where... <laughs> Somebody has to call it, and we're going to trust God enough by our own experiences that He can call it. Okay, so then my scenario, and according to the Great Controversy, uh, the book The Great Controversy, every question in the long-standing Great Controversy will be answered by the death of the wicked. By the death of the wicked. If God cuts that short, some of those questions won't be answered. Uh. 
this is quick, I remember. The question is, where could I look for that quote that Satan wanted to improve on the government of God and what it is? I believe it's in Patriarchs and Prophets. Well, I was sent from it. Yeah, it's like the first chapter. Patriarchs and Prophets. I've certainly seen some church boards like that. <laughs> so Revelation 16.1 attributes the last plagues to the wrath of God and with those the wrath of God is ended right uh, read great controversy on that she makes well, it very clear that it's usually let the Bible determine my theology first okay so if the wrath of God is God giving people up to the consequences of their choice and he was he withdraws from the earth, and he allows Satan to take over. Satan is the destroyer, according to the Bible. But it describes God as having authority over the plagues. He does. He has authority over when they begin. And then he steps back, and he says, Satan, you can have it. And the perception that the plagues of Egypt had a type or typology in the last plagues and the identity of the final plague as the angel of the Lord coming upon Egypt and the blood on the doorpost he's passing over some houses he's not passing over that is not um, a passive Okay, so what does God have to do to kill you? What's the easiest way he can kill you? Um, I, I would ask you to answer my question first because the angel I, That's God how I'm answering your question, is by dialoguing, okay? So, I don't know how he killed the, the firstborn in Egypt. But what would be the easiest way to kill a person? Simply let them go. See, if God is holding us on artificial life support... That's why we're alive. So you're saying it's a passive act that the angel of God mm-hmm. went through Egypt as a, as a passive mm-hmm. God. How can you say that? The baby's dying. But, I, you know, I know what you're saying. I'm grasping what you're saying. But I want to say, too, God gives them a last man with Satan and his army, and they march on the New Jerusalem. And Jesus said that's enough. Yeah. We can all see that they're never going to change. What does he do when they march on the New Jerusalem? He gives them a movie, the entire great controversy, and they see and they they kneel and say, "Yet just and true are your ways, O your King of Saints." And what what it convinces everybody that they're not changed is that they turn on one another, and there's follows as in Ellen White's words, a scene of universal strife. But I'll grant I'll grant you your way. I'll, I'll still stay with mine. I used to be yours too. I read somewhere in the Bible, and so I need to know if this is true. Because um, it wasn't a regular Bible. Uh, it said that in the last days, it will be so bad that even Christians will beg God to die, and they won't die. It's not in the Bible, to my knowledge. Okay, let's have prayer. Gracious Father, as we look at Scripture, we are challenged by the language. 
we are challenged in some ways by a culture that is distant from ours. And we pray that you will grant us the wisdom, discernment, and the readiness to continue to study and to ask questions and to dig more deeply. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.